Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. This episode features two guests, that's um, Aaron and Sean from the Seriously Wrong podcast. You'll hear exactly what that is when we get into the, the conversation with them and, and talk about a bit about that. But just to say that it is a utopian podcast, very much a podcast about utopia. So I'm sure um, listeners of this podcast will be very interested in it. And um, it's one I'd definitely recommend. But um, this this episode, as well as appearing on this feed, obviously, it will also be appearing on their feed on Seriously Wrong. So there's going to be some people listening uh, who won't have heard this uh, this podcast before. So I just thought I'd give a little bit of an extra explanation of of what this is, uh, what I'm doing on this show, just so you know. So the idea is that I am trying to look at Utopia from a whole variety of different perspectives to think about the the value of Utopia as uh, a critical tool, as a political tool, the ways that we can use it to imagine and try to realise a better future and what that might look like, um, to, to think about utopia as a, as a praxis, like how we can use it, how it functions, all those sorts of things. So the way I do that, I will, I, I look, as I said, I look at utopia for a whole range of different ways. So I've got episodes on um, novels that are utopian and dystopian in some way. So I've done things like Cloud Atlas, The Dispossessed, um, Neuromancer, H.G. Wells' Modern Utopia, I've done films, I've done Robocop, um, Kamikaze 89, Strange Days, Ghost in the Shell. I've also looked at real political movements, so I've done an episode on the Black Panthers, I've got an episode on cities and architecture, I've done episodes on video games, um, Grand Theft Auto V, Bioshock Infinite, um, Bloodborne, among other things. So yeah, I'm looking at it through through all these different um, all these different lenses, and I normally have a, a guest on to talk about whatever it is uh, that's the subject of that episode. So that's just a bit more detail on what this is. And I'm hoping that those of you who are hearing this podcast uh, for the first time. Um, if you have a browse through the feed and, and have a look at the stuff I've covered, I'm sure you can find something on there that that's interesting to you. I've got one other thing to, to get out of the way before before we get onto the conversation with Sean and Aaron. So at the same time as this episode is going up, I'm also launching a new podcast called Get Object. So I'm doing this with Rosie from the uh, from Diane the Diane podcast, which is, is a Twin Peaks podcast. Some of you might be familiar with. She's also, if you've been listening to this show for a while, she's appeared on here talking about Bloodborne and more recently Dark Souls in the in the video game Cities and Places episode I did. So this is a podcast about video games, or more specifically, it's a podcast about things in games. So the idea is that we take an uh, an object in each episode and we look at games through the lens of that object. Um, and it's a, uh, I think it's a different take to, to anything else you hear out there on video games. And it's been really fun to do and we're really happy with it. There are three episodes available now. So there's an episode on keys, there's an episode on maps, and there's an episode on gore. So yeah, I hope that you'll you'll take the time to check it out. I'd really appreciate it if you could uh, could give it a go. If you search for Get Object in whatever you listen to podcasts on, or you can find us on Twitter at Get Object Pod, and there'll be links to to everything there. So um, yeah, it should be easy to find, and um, 
as I said, we're happy with it and we're really excited that it's finally releasing and people are gonna gonna get to hear it and, and hopefully enjoy it. So yeah, get object, check that out. If you've got no interest in video games at all, um, be assured it's not gonna affect this show in any way. Um, you can tell that because, as I said, we've already recorded three episodes and it hasn't affected the schedule of this podcast. This is gonna, Utopian Horizons is gonna continue completely as normal. Um, get objects just a yeah separate extra thing that i'm doing with with rosie so even if you've got no interest in it it's not gonna not gonna affect this okay so on to onto the subject of this episode we'll be talking about two things with sean and aaron one of those is a book called inventing the future post-capitalism and a world without work by nick cernicek uh, that's how i pronounce it um, i'm not sure if that's correct but that's my my best effort um and alex williams it's published in in 2015 and it's a book that lays out a vision for a a yeah post-capitalist future without work um i think quite an influential book that contains a lot of um a very some very incisive critiques and a lot of stuff on trends that have been discussed in recent years like automation universal basic income and things like that so we're going to talk about that and we're also going to talk about library socialism that is a concept that aaron and sean have been developing on their podcast seriously wrong and um yeah i think developing developing visions of the future like concrete ideas of what the future is going to look like and trying to play around with that and imagine that is a really it's actually quite a difficult thing to do but a very important thing to do so i think it's great that they are doing that so yeah they, they're going to talk to us about exactly what library socialism is and uh how it works and i'm sure that many of of my listeners here will be attracted to the idea um it's one that i certainly like and uh you'll see why as we get into the conversation so yeah i don't think there's anything else i need to say up front here i'll leave you now with my conversation with sean and aaron joining me today are two guests um from the seriously wrong podcast i'm joined by sean hey there and aaron hello hello thank you for having us on no problem so to start off, could you uh, begin by telling us about your podcast? Because, uh, yeah, we're kind of fellow utopians, so I'm, I'm certain that my listeners are going to be very interested in uh, what you're doing on Seriously Wrong. Yeah, it's a, uh, and that's actually, that's the thing that, like, as soon as I heard about this, your podcast existing, I was like, oh, this is so great. I'm glad that someone else is doing a utopian podcast right now like from a different angle um but yeah our we do a utopian comedy podcast uh we sort of like um yeah tackle different political issues do comedy sketches um and we've been trying to sort of like build a set of ideas for universal human emancipation a vision for what that future would be like and how to get there uh, but also not taking it too seriously like we're just trying to have that conversation not necessarily like have the final word on it with her although i think we basically come close to the final word sometimes <laughs> it's like, the joke we like to make all the time it's, yeah we figured it all out we're per- we got to the bottom of it answered forever on our po- so if you want all the answers to everything about the utopian future and the present that's uh it's kind of what we do <laughs> uh yeah and i think it's it's something that even when we're talking about horrible things we try to make those horrible things uh bearable uh which is something that um it like takes active work so that's one of the things that we really try to do on the show is like make the horrors of the world bearable it's a through line yeah yeah because if you can't bear them then it's really hard to do anything to try to fix yeah, them sure I, I was gonna ask actually because i am a listener of the podcast since i 
Yeah, discovered. I don't know. Did somebody did somebody tweet at one of us about the other one or something? I don't know. But somehow through Twitter, I found about out about your podcast. So I'm a listener, and um, I was I was wondering, like, is the is the comedy element is the comedy element as simple as like you like comedy, or did you consciously do it thinking there's some specific like political or critical utility to using comedy? Yeah. The- I mean both. I mean it, it's it's probably just found a really elaborate way to justify how much that we like comedy through a, a philosophical lens. But I no, I think it does actually serve a purpose in like being able to um, talk about things and and have like ironic distance from things. I think helps people to process things or helps me to process things when they're like hard. Like that that comedy lens is powerful um so i think it serves a purpose that way in the whole like making stuff bearable but honestly it's just like uh, we like joking around it's fun and then it also evolved over time like we we just started off sort of joking around sometimes and then we tried like putting in sound effects and doing like little segments like that and then eventually just sort of sort of taking over the show and sometimes gets its own episodes and (laughs) um but it's yeah, it just makes the show more fun for us to do, and people like it, so I think it's good. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It came from Sean. He was, like, into improv and saying we should do sketches. So I was like, I guess I can try that. <laughs> you know how to do it. Anyway, it seems to work. It's, it works, yeah. Um, so, yeah, strong recommendation there. So make sure when you're Googling, you leave the vowels out of seriously uh, to find seriously wrong. Yes, S-R-S-L-Y. Yeah. Although if you search it full 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 hog, you'll still find the show. We we've we game the system. Oh well, nice, <laughs> cool. Okay, so yeah, we're going to be talking about um, a couple of things today. Um, I'm not sure in uh, exactly what order or we're going to mash this all together, but but we'll see how it shakes out. But um, those things are in inventing the future, um, a book that came out in uh, 2016, I believe and i think it's 2015 2015 okay thanks for uh yeah that would have been a nice i just mistake. looked this up five minutes ago yeah literally as i was saying it i was thinking why didn't i check that before we started recording but okay <laughs> 2015 um and we'll also be talking a bit about library socialism which is kind of your your own uh utopian ideal that you've been developing on the uh on your show so inventing the future was a book that uh, you mentioned. It's the first one you mentioned when we started talking about uh, you coming on, on to uh, talk to me. So I just wanted to start off by by um, uh, asking you like, why did did you pick that book? Like, why did it come to mind? Is it significant to you in some way in your thinking? Well, the, yeah. The reason I suggested inventing the future is I'm just trying to think of how fawning to make my endorsement of this book. It, it's like it's one of the best recent books that i've read i think like it's so dripping with wisdom and like um the the a lot of the critiques are extremely on point and what mm-hmm. it's describing is just i felt like it, it encapsulated something really rare politically when i read it and i was like really excited i um i was um highlighting it and i look back at my copy and like every page is like 55 to 60 percent highlighted um <laughs> And, uh, but basically like the heart of it, the thing that I really, really like about it. And so, uh, the, the heart of their argument that I thought was like really utopian and relevant for the show is 
they argue for a leftist counter hegemony, something, an ideological basis, uh, um, a set of common values, a common sense that can challenge uh, neoliberalism. Um, and they don't, they use the word utopian um, a little bit in the book, but you're not usually to refer to the leftist counter hegemony. But mm. their, their idea of leftist counter hegemony is basically a political utopianism for the purposes of uh, what they call like hyperstitional progress, where by predicting something, it helps make it become true, like a self-fulfilling mm. prophecy. So by asserting this future that we want to create, we make actualizing that future more possible, um, which I see as like completely clicking into sort of the idea of utopianism that um, Aaron and I had been talking about on the show at the time that I found the book. Um, so it, I think it's just like, it's, it's just a super brilliant, awesome book that has a lot to, uh, it breaks down a lot of stuff about sort of our current moment and how to reorient um, leftist uh, politics or, you know, politics of universal human emancipation towards a utopian outcome. And then like, get a, a legitimate tra trajectory towards that outcome that's that's uh, based in a, a good set of analysis mm. i think it's uh well i get the impression it's been a really influential book as well uh on the left i i, I mean i've had it for ages but i only read it like a couple of weeks um just before we're recording this um but I've seen I've seen it like referenced constantly in like loads of other books I've read and it feels like I don't, I don't know if this is the impression you've got as well but it feels like the kind of um or the, the movement around Falk for the automated luxury communism and ideas about post-scarcity it feels like a lot of that and the interest in that and things like universal basic income as well it feels like a lot of that interest kind of goes back to to this book yeah or I I think it, it was, at the very least it was sort of like a like a, a flashpoint where like there was a lot of like late there was a lot of discussions around this stuff that people were having yeah and then this became the book that first art articulated it in a place where you could sort of grab onto and like buy a copy for your friend and stuff so I think that the, that you're right about that because I remember when I read it too I was like these are ideas that I'm familiar with mm. and like or the stuff that I felt was really sort of cutting edge. Like I was learning about the the history of like reducing the work week and stuff. And I was like, man, we really got to bring this back. And then to find a book that was published like that, you know, within a couple months of the, that sort of um, those discussions happening in circles that I was, uh, I was a part of for the first time that I'd ever seen like serious discussions about shorting the work, shortening the work week. And then there's a book that comes out that includes that. And then just a number of other, like a laundry list of things that are just sort of floating around in the zeitgeist all put together in a coherent package. Yeah. Because stuff like, um, stuff that's become more prominent in like the last couple of years. So for example, in the UK, there's a, a campaign called campaign for four day working week or something like that. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, I interviewed one of the, one of the people involved in that on this podcast actually. And um, there's a, there's some uh, kind of uh, leftist economic groups that, are and these ideas are starting to starting to become more prominent and starting to circulate and people are becoming more aware of them. Certainly I became aware of some of these, um, some of these, the, the NEF as well, which is a, um, which I always forget what the acronym stands for. I think it's New Economic Forum or something like that. I don't know. But um, these things I've become aware of in the last couple of years. And then I went back to this book and a lot of that stuff is all like there, like years ago. So them talking about how we need to return to the idea of reducing working time without 
um, pay, uh, reducing the working week. Um, you know, these needs, this need to kind of articulate alternative ideas. I don't know if you agree with this as well, but it feels like some of the things they want to happen and they're asking to happen are starting to to uh, appear in a nascent form. It was, it was, yeah, really mind blowing to me to go back a few to this book from a few years ago and see a lot of these organisations that I've just started hearing about in that book and the things they're talking about happening now. Yeah, I think so. There's a there's a real um, when it, when it when it comes to asserting um, a like alternative trajectory from from neoliberalism, uh, we're in a much better place now in 2020 than we were in 2015 when the book was published. Can so one of the big things in this book is the critique of like where the left was at the time. Um, this idea of uh, that they introduced called folk politics. I, w- I wanted to hear, perhaps you could explain a bit what that is for, for, for listeners. And I, I want to know what you think of that, because I believe one or both of you was involved in um, Occupy. Is that right? Yeah, we um, we were both in, in I was I was pretty heavily involved in an in Occupy camp and um, Aaron uh, visited an Occupy camp, but what, he wasn't like an active participant the same way. But yeah, I was there a little bit here in Vancouver, but but yeah, it would just be it would just be interesting to hear from, you know, cause seeing as you were like involved because Occupy is one of the things they identify as being like folk political. So it'd be also interesting to hear like if what they are, if their critiques resonate with like your experience of being there. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, well, especially at the time, like when this book first came out, at the time, it was like this this critique of uh, folk politics for me. I was like, this is perfect. Like, finally, someone's saying it. Um, I feel like of the parts of the book, actually, it's it's the part that's um, the critique of folk politics is, is probably the weakest part for me now, like later on. But at the time, especially, I was like, this is this is like top tier mm-hmm. critique. Uh, but like and just to. And what I mean by it being sort of the weakest point of the book, even though I think it identifies a lot of like accurate, um, accurate critiques of like subcategories um, or like things that you see within leftist spaces and stuff. I think that and I'll, I'll be, to be fair to them, they also do often um, like acknowledge the benefits of things like decentralization and horizontalism yeah. um, and these sort of like things that have become common sense and they call uh, on the left, they call folk politics. And they, they're like, oh, yeah, of course, um, sometimes a d- direct democratic process can be this excellent thing that achieves great results. However, and then they like talk for a page and a half about why direct democracy is complex and uh, hard and like bad things that happen when you do it. Mm. Um so there is that little like sliver of acknowledging there's a legitimacy to direct democracy, for example. But like my, I, I, f- I feel like there's also and th- there's just r- more room for development along these lines of critique. Like they mention that perhaps we could have like a post-capitalist social media platform where you'd have democratic engagement in a more meaningful sense. But that's literally their only positive platform for democracy in the book. So they dedicate a lot of time to critiquing direct democracy, which I think is really foundational and important. Um, And they give sort of one line to be like, oh, but maybe we could do it well someday. And I'm like, yeah, that's really important. That should have its own chapter. Like that should, yeah. But um, I think overall, like the critiques are really strong. Um, And yeah, in particular, just like some of the ways that like, yeah, like the direct democracy of Occupy or like the the idea of not wanting demands, 
it wasn't in at the so I was at Occupy Winnipeg, and I think there was sort of a desire for demands for everyone, but there was a confusion about how to come to that consensus. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, like a, a few of us worked on sort of a demand document to send to the media. Um, and ironically, this is a true story from Occupy Winnipeg. Um, ironically, we made this, I think, really smart and like on point summary of what the Occupy movement's about and how it could apply to our context in Winnipeg. But we didn't send it to the media because we we're like, well, we need to make sure that everyone agrees on this and that we're all on the same page. Um, and then so the next day, someone else sent their statement to the media without <laughs> consulting any of us. And it yeah. became the official statement. Uh, so because it was like two or pe two random other people did it. So we made something really great that never saw the light of day. That's a, that's a real. <laughs> and instead it was instead it was good, though. It, it, it was good, but it just wasn't. Um, they yeah. they talked. Their focus was really on like the colonial history of Winnipeg and stuff like that, uh, which I think turned off some people at the camp, even though it's like a legitimate thing. It, you know, it's 2011 and. Um, we, I think leftist politics wasn't really as developed in the public sphere, but, um, the, uh, the method in which that it was sent away, it was like, um, yeah. I don't have a ton to say on this specifically, but when I was reading the book recently as someone who didn't participate in Occupy a whole lot, mm -hmm. I definitely felt like those early chapters, they were working through some of their own like problems that they had. Yeah. in engaging in that sort of stuff and like what they saw as the issues with it and i think they kind of took yeah like sean was saying the benefits for granted but it it pre it presents a pretty like unbalanced picture but i think if you um i think for a lot of people at that time it, it was necessary yeah needed critique and also sort of like a social it's like a salve like um on on the the the, the people who were uh wounded by their experiences and first participation in leftist politics and the challenges that came out of it to be like yeah someone finally is talking about the things that sucked because my experience at occupy with the general assemblies was i stopped by like two of them for 10 minutes or something and just pe people bringing up really random stuff like chemtrails i'm sure i heard someone talking about chemtrails in my two brief stops at the general assembly and just like for a long time and nobody's stopping them from talking and being like oh okay yeah. i guess this is pointless i don't know what this is for uh at the time i i wasn't really even aware of the what they were doing other than this is the main meeting i guess so this is i don't yeah. know what this is <laughs> but that's kind of what they're trying to get at though isn't it like this yeah, this this idea that nobody really knows, like the, for for them these these politics are like these temporary things that emerge quickly and don't really have any kind of direction or long term idea of it's exactly the kind of things you're talking about. They don't have a in terms of like making demands and stuff. They don't have a clear idea of what their long term goal is, and given the way those movements kind of dissipated, I think it's kind of hard to to not take something out of the critiques they're making. I mean, I think a lot of them are on point. And, and even when they're talking about the, the, the nature of folk politics as being like a, a defensive thing. And even now when you look at in recent, recent history, like in the UK, for example, where I'm from and the, a lot of politics has been around stopping austerity and saving the NHS from privatization, which is two examples they, they bring up in the book. There's no, there is a lack of like vision there of what are we going to do it's just a yeah like a, a defensive a defensive thing so 
Yeah, and it's one of like the one of the most brilliant critiques of this chapter. I think is this idea of like we have seeded um, as people who are trying to build a better world. We've seeded stopping tragedy. Like we're, we've seeded preventing nightmares. We no longer talk about dreams. We no longer talk about things like universal human emancipation. Um, or a vision of a society that people would actually want to live in in the future. Instead, we're just like, oh, like the 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 peak of radicalism is blocking a train from getting somewhere so it can do something horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, like so w- it is a dysfunctional politics, and that's like, and I think that is the heart of like the folk politics critique, or like I think the most important part. Yeah, the idea that it's focused on process rather than outcomes is something they mention a lot. Like, there's a lot of ideas mm-hmm. about the what the lived experience of these politics should be like, and what the the how the democracy should work, and creating these little bubbles of a working direct utopian democracy in these temporal spaces, like Occupy camps or uh, organizations meant to do these defensive. Uh, protests and stuff like that, but it's all it's it's very process oriented or focused on short term goals in a defensive posture, and not on imagining and shooting for and working towards taking steps towards this better future, something that we actually want, something positive. And also, just uh, one one other component that I think is important to mention is is the idea that. The idea is that folk politics is kind of inherently a local thing and we've got to confront capitalism, which is global. And their kind of argument following someone like Frederick Jameson is that you need you need a kind of global totalizing approach if you're going to beat a global totalizing system. Um, I just I wanted to just talk quickly because I, I think this is um, so a lot of a lot of books that you read from the left will include some kind of critique of neoliberalism necessarily. But something that I, in this book, which I haven't seen anywhere else, I don't think is the the way that they kind of show how neoliberalism was almost constructed in like a utopian fashion. Not in the sense that I think in any way that neoliberalism is a utopia, of course, but the, the, the way they talk a lot about how the people who who pushed it forward, uh, Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, uh, Ludwig van Mises. Yeah, he, he talks about how they articulated ideas that were not seen as possible at the time, which of course is an inherently like, utopian thing to do. And I thought that that, I don't know about you, but I thought that the way that they, the way that they identified like a process of neoliberalism and how it built hegemony and how it used like a, a utop- almost a utopian praxis is really useful in like looking at how you can you talked about building a counter hegemony so i thought that was really useful in like learning lessons from that yeah something we've mentioned on the show before is that ayn rand is one of the like only capitalist utopian fiction writers like she created this mm-hmm. in her imagination like a beautiful world this little break-off society of billionaires like reasserting their rights against the masses that are oppressing them and like it's also it's a bit we do on the show a lot too that like oh this is somebody's utopia but not our utopia in this like weird future world based on some principle that other people see as being fundamental um so yeah exactly like they they did follow this kind of 
process that they're in inventing the future, suggesting that maybe we should emulate in certain ways. They they articulated what this future world could look like, like a, a totally free market, all these productive forces unleashed, everybody becoming rich, uh, except for the people who can't and you know that's natural selection or something like that but but besides that like it's 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 going to be the best of all possible worlds and also let's establish all these think tanks and um political writers and um just just get into all these different areas of society with these ideas and present them to people create policies that help push us in that direction, policy proposals that are then laying around that we can suggest to politicians, um, create media, create, create all this kind of stuff to like uh, exemplify what you want to happen and the steps you want to take to get there with um, institution building um, and seeing how effective that has been uh, for them. I think, yeah, it can be instructive for what we could do. Yeah, they describe neoliberalism uh, in its development as a uh, as a solution in weight of a problem. This this like set of ideas mm -hmm. that uh, when when there was uh, economic crises, uh, they were able to like push. And be, they they already had their think tank network set up. They'd already described all these beautiful yeah. utopian futures, and they're like, here, try this. Like this will work. Um, and um, it is it is instructive of how we've got a direct it's like a direct example of a successful like you said like a utopian praxis a utopian um, a, an utopian utopian political strategy that first starts with asserting what's needed or what what you think is needed uh, to build up a common sense and then use that common sense uh, or like convince people of the validity of that common sense. So th that common sense spreads across society, and uh, it it uh, it becomes this dominating thing, and that's what neoliberalism is. It like it, it's this insidious, <laughs> this insidious, ever present ideology that people who don't think that they're neoliberals can sort of fall into this neoliberal thinking, and um, and I think what is really appealing to me about um, inventing the future is the idea of doing that again, except good, like doing that again, where the world we we can help infect the world with a common sense that helps everyone thrive. Yeah, we want the conservative podcast to be sitting there being like, oh, this insidious, utopian, fully automated luxury communism ideology. It's just this common sense that people fall into thinking all the time. I spend so much time dismantling all of the just assumptions that people have. <laughs> uh, and then meanwhile, if you pay attention closely on the show, they're actually repeating our assumptions. Uh, that's the dream. That's that's the... <laughs> Um, yeah. But it works for neoliberalism. It genuinely is quite inspiring when you look at how, because it, it, as they point out, it starts off as a really small number of people forming this society, Mont Pelerin society, and yeah, it's not like they they have at, at the time uh, they would have been seen as cranks really because Keynesianism Keynesianism was dominant at the time, so they didn't start from this. Um, yeah, position of, of dominance and that and from a, such a small group they managed to yeah extend their network out build these institutions so yeah i think we should be inspired by the neoliberals on our way to destroying them um let's just talk a, a little bit perhaps about what this book's utopia is and then i, I think it'd be good to to get on to, to library socialism and talk about uh your utopia so yeah what what are the what are the aspects of the the world that they 
that they um, lay out their vision for that kind of um, stand out to you or, or seem most appealing or that you, you kind of latched onto uh, most when you, when you read this? Well, in their proposal for uh, a leftist um, counter hegemony to challenge neoliberalism, the I think they had four pillars that they suggest. Um, and they've also made mm-hmm. clear that they, they don't want to have final word on this, that they're trying to have this conversation and that people are invited to be part of um, refining the future of this. But the four pillars that they identify um, are that they want to make the new common sense um, is shortening the work week, instituting a universal basic income, um, challenging the idea of the work ethic, and of course, the most important, full automation. So making a society that's fully automated. Yeah. And um, I think that's a really, really good basis for a leftist counter uh, counter hegemony. Um, in particular, like the the sh- the shortening of the work week and the challenging of the work ethic is something that I um, it's it's something that we uh, really identified with on the show start when we first started in like 2014. Um, so again, it was like one of the things that when I read this book, I was like, oh man, they got it. They really like piece it all together. Like these guys are these guys are brilliant. Two steps ahead. Hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, like I I hate working. I think a lot of people hate working. Um, like most of people's opportunities in the world, the jobs that they have opportunities to do um, don't pay enough and are somehow humiliating. Um, and that's like the just the reality of the majority of people's conditions on earth. So being able to connect that sense of humiliation, that lack of dignity, um, the the way that the workplace um, dehumanizes us, at least the very vast majority of us. Um, and then being able to connect that to a common sense piece that, oh yeah, we should work less. And like working isn't good in itself. We shouldn't define ourselves through our work. And actually, um, we should get paid at least a bit for being alive. Uh, like we're contributing value just by being here because, uh, everyone has value. Um, like if that could be the common sense, um, that would really screw over, um, the bad guys who want to destroy us all. Um, (laughs) so the anti-work politics is like, and the way that connects to lived experience too, um, and like people's day-to-day experience, um, I think should be foundational when we're trying to build a common sense, a a left counter hegemony. Um, so being able to connect to, as we have, uh, historically done, you know, in the labor movement and the history, um, of like anarchism and communism, um, and even liberalism, um, is, you know, connecting to people's day-to-day experience, um, that sense of injustice they feel towards sketching out a utopian sort of vision uh, of of what should be instead, and then taking steps to get there. Like this is a this is really powerful stuff. Yeah, I think it does a, a yeah. There's a, a really nice balance in there, as you suggest, of like kind of uh, yeah, concrete proposals, but also thinking about how those those things are based in like cultural ideas. And, and the kind of need to uh, change those things in concert and how one might affect the other and kind of the also thinks about the kind of knock-on effects of doing those things like how automation f- for example can be a way of uh, increasing worker power by like withdrawing um, by taking labor out of the market and stuff like that but yeah, one of the ideas I really liked in there was the the idea of synthetic versus natural freedom which I think is a really, really important one. So this is the distinction they make between 
uh, what they call a, an emaciated concept of freedom. So uh, uh, what we would think of, I guess, is like our natural freedom, where we're kind of free to be who we are and um, we shouldn't be interfered with. And we should be free from the government. And of course, in the neoliberal world, we should be free to sell our economic power to who we want and we should choose consumer goods. But um, this idea that you can choose to... <laughs> you can choose to work for who you want to that's all very well and good but as they point out if you well, we need we need money to have um shelter and food and so on and so forth so the idea that we can choose not to have a job doesn't really work so their idea is that this this is kind of a inadequate conception of freedom and they point out that freedom is something that has to be kind of built synthetically which again is a is a cultural change in the way we think about freedom and the idea is that we need, like a, um, we need to give p- people a material basis from which freedom then arises. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, a really useful one. I feel like it's been quite directly or not. I feel it's something that's been quite influential on uh, your kind of podcast. It's, it's something you've talked about, uh, if not directly in the in the um, terms of synthetic freedom. It feels like something that's been influential on on you guys. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean the 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 balance between freedom from and freedom to is like foundational to like libertarian socialism um, and anarchism and stuff. And I think the synthetic freedom is a really uh, good way to to put that in that you need material basis for free. Like we're all technically equally free to buy a gold plated yacht, but actually mm-hmm. there's only some people who are really truly free to do that because they have the material means to do so. I mean, I guess we could each go into debt and stuff. We could, um, problem with that. No, but even then, it's like debt is not, it's it's not free to be in debt. Um, so Jeff Bezos has the freedom. I don't think we'd get the, a big enough loan. <laughs> What's that? You couldn't get a big enough loan? I don't think we'd get a big enough loan for gold plated yacht. Yeah. I don't know about Maybe you. We all I, think I, I think the bank would shoot me down. <laughs> We're good for it, man. We just want a gold plated yacht. <laughs> it's a reasonable request. So some people are free to get a gold plated yacht. And I think that's, um, yeah, that's, that is, I think, an emaciated concept of freedom um, that would that not, not make a distinction between the, the freedom of the rich and the freedom of the poor. You just need both sides of freedom. You need the freedom from, you need freedom from undue interference, freedom from assault, uh, robbery, etc. But you also need the freedom to do things. Otherwise, it's just not freedom. It's just something else. And and that connects to universal basic income and it's, it's sort of best form. Um, is you're just giving people more power in their lives. You're giving people um, the ability to, the, the power to make more more choices that have that material basis. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and another thing I just want to mention that I just remembered about the way that they frame it in Inventing the Future uh, around the sort of concept of hyper hyperstitionality, these self-fulfilling prophecies. When it comes to automation, for example, and I think this is a profound uh, point that's really, really stuck with me and become... A, a deep part of my politics since reading this book is that automation as it unfolds naturally under capitalism does not necessarily unfold in a way that gives greater convenience to the people who are most in need. It, it yeah. Automation unfolds in ways that are profitable uh, to the companies that are um, managing the, the development of automation. So it means that you're going to get um, automated cashiers uh, before you get affordable uh, affordable meal prep for for people who can't cook their own meals through automation, you know, like there's 
the system isn't matching people's needs. It's matching what's profitable. And so it needs to be a political discussion and a political um, struggle and argument to make automation work for as many people as possible, to free as many people as possible. Because, for example, we have dishwasher technology. It exists. But how well is dishwasher technology spread across the world? How many people are washing dishes right now that we actually already have physical dishwashers lying around that we could potentially even like just move to where these people are and help give them some extra time in their day to be, you know, um, democratic citizens or, or whatever. Um, so the ca capitalism has been good at making some limited innovation, um, limited automation uh, for the optimized for profit. Uh, but it's been very poor at spreading that around the world or spreading that to people who need it or prioritizing which types of automation are more, most important. So those need to be a political uh, challenge to sort of the world of automation. So we're neither just like blindly applauding the things that come out of Silicon Valley um, and being like, oh, these guys are like the new kings. Um, but we're also not going to be like overcritical of the idea of technological progress or the idea that these technologies can can help people. We just putting it in a political context um, and arguing for the future we want to create to make that future more likely to happen. Yeah. And also when you have a society where people are working less, where there's more automation, you're going to have a society where people are, have less stress and are more mentally well and have more time and energy to actually take care of themselves and get to a place where they, they can participate in a society and contribute to society in a way that they feel good about. And um, this is going to have a lot of downstream effects where people are going to be able to better participate in political issues that they actually care about. So like not only is making things more efficient and more automated potentially really good for climate change, but having a bunch of people who have more time on their hands mm -hmm. to fight these issues can also be really good for climate change. So, so building a society where people are more comfortable and aren't on this constant rat wheel of running through all of the hoops that are necessary to eke out a decent life in a neoliberal society, the more we're going to have like active, engaged citizens who can actually help solve some of like the biggest problems that are facing us right now. Yeah, sure. So let's talk then because one of the, so one of the things this, this book is calling for is kind of a need to um, make new ideas um, to be utopian. Uh, as you say, it doesn't talk about utopia a lot, but there are sections where it explicitly talks about the need to be utopian and to push like beyond boundaries that are considered possible at the moment and to have have these visions to have these debates and for if, if for nothing else then for the the tactical reason of of as as you said having these ideas ready to go and lying around um at a time of crisis where we we might be able to have them uh, employed so i guess that's kind of what you're you've done with library socialism right you've started to yeah construct your 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 own kind of idea of of what the future could be like so um yeah library socialism where does this uh where does this idea come from like how did you end up deciding to make some make make shows articulating this 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 idea uh, i think like it originally just the words kind of fell out of one of our mouths i think sean's mouth just like put those two words together library socialism and it has such a like immediate intuitive power to it like you say it and there's there's a kind of 
knowing that people get like a like everyone knows how libraries work and what libraries are mm -hmm. in society right now it's this publicly funded institution where anybody like regardless of how much money you have can go and get some of your needs met get your need for books met but also internet access uh, there's different community events there's different there's all kinds of different things going on at the library all the time and it has this system where you can borrow a book and give it back and then a bunch of people can all use the same book so it's it's a really dense concept in one word uh, and then yeah popping it in front of socialism uh gives this idea of oh it's a it's a society-wide project we're talking about the the lines between libraries and socialism is pretty obvious for most people and it's just like this super evocative phrase that has an embedded common sense right in it that as soon as we put it together realized like oh this is super powerful maybe let's do an episode about this uh, and we can just re-articulate some things that we've already talked about through the lens of libraries and just kind of talk through it and uh, so we did that we recorded our first episode on it or the first recording on it and in that recording we actually kind of like figured out a lot of a lot more ways that libraries made a lot of sense and intersected with our values and the values of the society we wanted to create. And we were kind of just amazed ourselves at how much sense it seemed to be making and how exciting we found the library uh, metaphor and the library lens for talking about this stuff. So then it kind of snowballed and we did a couple more episodes about it and we're still thinking about it and planning to do some writing and other stuff on it too. Yeah, because with with a with a library where you have it's such it's such a great example of so um, uh, Murray Bookchin, um, who's uh, a a big influence in social ecology um, on like our politics and on library socialism, um, is he he there's a a quote of his where he said it used to be that scarcity was something that was endured, but now it has to be enforced. It used to be that a grain shortage would be the reason that you don't get grain. Now we have enough grain for everyone, but instead we literally put police between the grain and people and make them pay for it. So there's there's people on earth who haven't got the grain that they needed because it's that, that scarcity is being enforced. So this was like um, uh, this proposal was like the part of the basis of some of Bookchin's uh, earlier anarchist politics, um, like post scarcity anarchism. And it's. It, it's it's embodied so well in the library where you have this sort of alternative property relationship that isn't purchase and ownership like you'd find in a bookstore, but instead is a model that's based partially on trust uh, where there's sort of shared property where you can loan something out for the period of its use and then return it and it can be used uh, by someone else. But the thing that like just blew my mind when we first recorded this uh, library socialism episode is the way that that tackles both the environmental crisis and the social crisis at the same time. So we've got a crisis of like inequality, um, uh, power and wealth inequality, and people not getting what they need, a social crisis, and an environmental crisis. Uh, we're emitting too much carbon, we're using too many resources, and we're heading towards um, uh, an uncertain climate future as a result of that. And the library says, well, let's use less resources to get something to more people. And it's like, 
like what like you can use less resources and get it to more people and it's like oh yeah it's called a library we've been doing it for hundreds of years actually you've been around libraries your whole life you never realize that you're getting more resources to less people when you set up a library than a bookstore no i never thought of that until we were already recording library socialism episode one <laughs> it like it, it it like so if you set up society to have more libraries and more alternative property arrangements you're going to be able to tackle both the social crisis and the environmental crisis at the same time and uh it, it's sort of intuitively connected to just like library socialism it seems it flows off the top of the brain yeah i, I don't think you could uh, underestimate how um useful that is to hear a term and because like you said aaron i think if i said to somebody what do you think library socialism means if i and i didn't say anything else i don't think what they'd come up with would be that far from what you envision because it's so instinctive uh to, to yeah like you say everyone knows what a library is i think that is um very very useful just to be clear for, for listeners as well so your your idea of library socialism is that we would basically extend the institution of, of the library so that it would not just be lending books it would be for everything effectively yeah just just as much as possible as much as is feasible i mean you're obviously not going to return a hamburger when you're done with it so that needs to be dealt differently <laughs> through the process of meeting people's needs but when it comes to something like taking a speedboat out for a spin no one really needs to own a speedboat who's on a speedboat all the time um, like we're probably manufacturing more speedboats than humanity needs right now. Like if we did a real like sort of economic material analysis. So how do we make sure that people have access to speedboats when they actually need it while at the same time, like not just having all these unused speedboats and garages all over the world, which is the situation that we've inherited. I think we probably already have enough speedboats on earth to last us like for good. Yeah. yeah, another great example is like camping equipment. Uh, you maybe go camping once or twice a year. Some people maybe go more, but you leave your tent sitting in your closet for most of the year. And yeah, just all kinds of stuff like that. Even like a laptop, you get a laptop upgraded every couple years. Um, those parts and those things can still be useful. Like you can go to the library and get a laptop that is good for what you need it for right now. So say you just want something to take on a trip that's lighter than your normal laptop, uh, but you don't need it all the time. Yeah. You don't use it. So you can take that out of the library, use it for your trip, return it when you're done. You still have your normal like gaming laptop at home that can run everything you need it to run. Um, th things like that are just like intuitive um, you, you only need things while you need them. And like some things, yes, you want to have on hand at all times, but that's like a bed, like your own bed. Yeah. You don't want to bring that to a library every morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think the, the, the tent example, um, you gave as well was, was really useful because I know you've, you've used that example before, but, um, another aspect of that that you pointed out was like these tents that a lot of us have probably pretty shitty tents. Because we, uh, because in a non-library socialist world, we have to buy everything, um, so we have less money to spread around, or most of us do. So when we buy a tent, we probably don't buy to go camping once or twice a year, like you said. We probably don't buy like the best top of the line tent. So this means there's hundreds of thousands of people with loads of 
really shitty tents that they hardly ever use, which is um, yeah. And then they get get they get incredibly sorry. And then they get holes in them and they throw the tents out uh, like after one or two years. Whereas if it was this library with only like really good tents, they could probably last a really long time. And yeah, you could. Yeah, there's lots of things. If you buy a bigger tent because now you uh, you had kids and you want a bigger tent for the whole family, like you could just trade that in. Like it's it's so useful for so many things. And I think a great thing about library socialism, and I, I should also probably make explicit that. Hello, it's me again. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation that you are no doubt enjoying very much. But just quickly wanted to say that if you want to hear more from me, then please consider heading to patreon.com slash utopianhorizons where you can get access to to a whole bunch of bonus episodes. And the most recent episode is uh, on an article about a maximum pay ratio, a nice idea to move towards a, a more equitable and utopian world. I'm also continuing to work my way through Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, and I'll be uh, returning to economic science fictions as well. Thank you very much to all of you that are already supporting me on there. It's it's a big help. And um, yeah, as well as you getting bonus stuff, if you, if you support me, it makes a difference to me and it helps me to continue doing this. So so yeah, thanks very much. And uh, you can find all that on patreon.com slash utopian horizons. Sorry to interrupt. I'll uh, get you back to the conversation now. And I think a great thing about library socialism, and I, I should also probably make explicit that sort of library socialism is really strongly influenced by inventing the future and social ecology and that the two sort of like if you want to build your own library social socialism at home just think about the words library socialism and then read some social ecology and read inventing the future and then just sort of think through it and then you've created your own your own little library socialism it could and who knows what you'll come up with and that's like a cool thing about it. it's like that's the base pieces here but um what I what I wanted to say about so library socialism as the left hegemony like is our sort of version of the left hegemony that they're talking about inventing the future I think can actually go toe to toe with neoliberalism and the hegemony of our current society on any value that it claims to have and step up like when you talk about neoliberals well what do we want to create well we want to create value we want to give people prosperity um and etc well library socialism actually does that better because prosperity is shared but it's still real prosperity like if you still get to use a nice tent when you need it like that's what rich people already get they get the nicest tent they can use it whenever they need it the rest of us have to struggle with okay well i'm going to save up for a crappy tent and hopefully i can take some time off work uh to use it oh i had that tent in my um in my closet for a couple of years. I only used it once. I'm so embarrassed. I'm such a wasteful consumer. Oh, I tried to set up the tent. It didn't even work. I have to throw it out. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I spent all this money. Oh, I'm an idiot. Meanwhile, or you have to buy, you have, then you have to, you might end up spending more money because you have to buy multiple shit tents because you don't have the money to make the upfront investment. Whereas the rich people can just buy the good tent upfront. Oh yeah. And they figured out the scam. Like uh, with the example that, um, uh, Aaron gave about laptops, you know, rich people know this scam and poor people uh, don't know this scam, which is that you buy something and then you just return it when you're done with it and you get all your money back. Uh, you just go to the right stores and under capitalism, they already have a sort of quasi library socialist <laughs> experience if you know how to game the system. But the, the, the asterisks on that is a lot of the time they just throw out whatever you t- <laughs> they just literally throw out whatever you return to the store and mark it as a loss. Um, so but rich people already do that shit. They know they know how to game the corners of, of 
the system like this. They got the money to do the upfront, and then they just get the money back too, and then they throw out the tent. Sorry, did I did I interrupt your your tent thought? So no, no, no. That's I. I just, okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking about this because I actually did that scam recently for the first time. Returned something when I was done using it. I was like, damn, people really, people really do it this way. It's great. And I got <laughs> yeah. all the money back. I got everything I wanted yeah. out of this Nintendo Switch. Oh, nice. <laughs> So you, the way that you outlined library socialism is post-scarcity, I would say. But do you think that it it works, um, it would also work in the context of scarcity? It feels like it would to me, and that feels like a big strength because I think having, um, having, having a system that is set up to aim for an ideal but can accommodate itself to less ideal conditions if we need to because of climate change and things like that feels like a point of power and it it feels like this is something that library socialism could do because things like you're talking about for example um yeah like we were saying about having a few really good tents instead of loads of shit ones um and, and things like um manufactured obsolescence become kind of pointless in this system so it feels like to me it would be, um, even though you've kind of envisaged it, envisaged it as post-scarcity, it feels like it could work in a different context. Yeah, well, that's the strength of, and so we we use the term uh, complementarity uh, sometimes to describe this, which you get, uh, which pulled from Bookchin, but they also actually use the word complementarity a few times in Inventing the Future um, to describe the process of getting more with less. Uh, so like libraries currently get more with less by making efficient use of like book hours book existing hours book experience hours being distributed um so it the thing it's sort of like i think transcends the distinction between scarcity and post-scarcity in the sense that it helps generate post-scarcity where there might be a functional... It, it helps generate the experience of post-scarcity where there might be actually a physical scarcity. Um, and I think that's like foundational to achieving post-scarcity. Like post-scarcity isn't literally an unlimited number of gold-plated speedboats like just unlimited mm. for everyone all the time. Like that's sort of the intuitive sense you, you might get when you hear post-scarcity. Yeah. But what post-scarcity actually refers to is that anyone who needs a gold-plated st- speedboat <laughs> gets it when they need it, which is a revealing sort of premise because you realize actually no one needs a gold-plated speedboat and perhaps they shouldn't exist. But, but do people yeah. need a speedboat for certain things? Like, it yeah. It could be like an th- art project, the gold-plated one. You could visit it, you know, someone made one. Uh, <laughs> reminder of old opulence or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, so, uh, something I just wanted to mention because it's a a nice phrase that I like that I encountered in um, a book called Economic Science Fictions was this uh, this idea that there are um, enclaves of post capitalism within capitalism. I think the 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 library is a really uh, great example of that. Because, of course, we think post-capitalism, we think, well, that can only be what comes after capitalism, which is true. But I, I like the idea of looking for aspects uh, in the world that we have that, that kind of point towards a different future. And and people were, um, I mean, people are often kind of intensely defensive of, like, libraries uh, in their communities. It's one of the, I think you mentioned this in your in your episode as well it's like a it, they are often community spaces they're like the only place you can go you're allowed to just be like for free 
so they they do often um they are something that's like intensely defended by uh communities like okay they they do get shut down um unfortunately but it's not something that goes uh, that tends to go unremarked upon or without protest um so i think people already have a kind of connection to that uh it reminds me of um like national health service which we have in in the uk which is um unfortunately under increasing threat but people are intensely intensely defensive of it and it's very hard for the reason it's taken so long for the right to kind of pick it apart is because you can't kind of openly say that you want to get rid of it so yeah i just thought that there was something useful in that idea and i think that people already have a kind of connection to the library and the way that library works which suggests that they they might be instinctively attracted to the idea of library socialism i don't know yeah there when you think about the transition from feudalism to capitalism you do see in that as well that it was something that took place over the course of a long time it wasn't just a moment where it like the french revolution happened and then everything was capitalism after that feudalism over uh no it took a long time and in that time you saw a lot of this you saw the the circumstances of the world changing and these patterns that are became typical of capitalism starting to emerge beforehand in feudalist societies so yeah when you're seeing these like historical changes you can sometimes point to things that were like pre-glimmers of it happening in the society beforehand and i think we shouldn't hesitate to claim the things that exist in the world right now uh, as imperfect as they may be in like their neoliberal iterations uh, to claim them as like this is what we want and this is what we want more of in society and i think libraries are like a perfect example of that and i agree totally that uh like we're in canada we also have uh, some kind of national health care, like most places except the USA, but like people love that. We love being able to go to the hospital uh, or the doctor when we need it and yeah, not God having forbid, to pay money. But if you yeah. need it, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's better than needing it and not being able to have it or like needing it and getting it and also getting 100K in debt or something. Um, so yeah, these are things that people do really love and they're exactly what we want. We want that experience of getting healthcare when you need it, of getting books and information when you need it, of having community spaces that anyone can go to and exist in without being required to provide tokens or like uh, biosecurity tickets or whatever. That's, that's yeah, yeah it, it, it's good things that currently exist that people have a connection to already so yeah when you're trying to build a common sense uh connecting it to those things is really really powerful another thing like that too and i think under um underestimated among sort of polite society but i think we need to pull uh, pull this into the conversation is stuff like file sharing websites uh like napster the pirate bay and all this stuff which has contributed so immensely to the cultural development um, uh, since the advent of the internet, like I just, the amount of cultural experiences that have been had for free, mm. almost as if borrowed from the library, uh, via these services since the advent of, uh, like, I guess Napster would be like the first one, or you could argue there'd be earlier incarnations, but the, 
those experiences are so valuable and the 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 shuttering down through intellectual property laws of these library type spaces online i think is something that um is a tragedy and will rightfully uh, be seen as a tragedy sooner rather than later so just going to get ahead of the curve with this one and i invite all the listeners to join us being ahead of the curve libraries on the internet should be legal yeah because yeah that's an example where post-scarcity already kind of just naturally exists and scarcities have to be artificially imposed because yeah we can already share information on the internet for effectively free um something which i just wanted to to quickly mention again which I, i forgot to say when i was talking about people knowing what libraries are like a lot of these um a lot of books that that kind of articulate visions of the future so um including i think this book i quite often find that even if i really like them i don't often end them having like a strong sense of what day-to-day life feels like in whatever they're outlying i would level that criticism at this book as well even though i really like it and i think it does a lot of useful things it has broad a broad ideas but i don't it doesn't quite connect me on a day-to-day level hey when you talked about library library socialism um because i have been to a library and i know how a library works it, it felt more like i had yeah a clear idea of how it would affect my day-to-day life when you talked about stuff like it, they may sound like we're kind of having trivial examples like tents or whatever but i do think like yeah i've got a tent that's annoying to store and it's not a very good tent and yet it would be good if i didn't have to store that here and then i'd have more space and I could go and get a good tent. When you, you talked about uh, a library in your neighborhood where if you need to cut your grass, then you go to the library and get a lawnmower. So you don't have to buy an expensive lawnmower. And you don't have to have a shed to store the lawnmower in. Just these really like small things and having and having a sense of what your life will be like on a day-to-day basis, I think is important in utopian visions in terms of getting people on board with them. I don't know if you agree. No, yeah, totally. And it's something we like doing in our sketches too, even though the sketches will usually obviously contain some kind of comedic element. There'll be something uh, really wild going on as well, but we like to sometimes just marinate and being like, oh yeah, and we'll head over to the uh, TV library. I needed to upgrade my TV and cool. Yeah, I'm going to grab some ice cream here at the dispensary and just kind of like... You play, you're playing with it. Having a, bit, a normal conversation. Kind of... Yeah, yeah, just existing in the world. and being, Yeah, exactly. Um, showing, like, how it could feel normal, I guess, to live in a world like that. Yeah, and I mean, we, we always, as, like, utopians, you always want to promise, well, what's the feeling of the future going to be like? Well, imagine being cold and then becoming warm and being held that's the future we want to fight for oh i'm so cold and so oh oh oh, i'm being held oh it's warm oh i feel better that's the future we want to promise um but obviously also and we like on our show we tend to explore this a lot through through the sketches because it's it's funny how utopias can go wrong Mm. um like it's it's humorous but just because you're just because we achieve these goals that we're outlining doesn't mean like we're going to achieve a problem free uh, future. So the fact that we're going to, I think that's part of 
viscerally imagining what the future could be like it's trying to imagine not just how perfectly the ice cream dispensary is going to give me unlimited free ice cream whenever i want it although i think that is and it's healthy too it's healthy it tastes the same but it's now healthy for you um, obviously but at the same time maybe there's something really challenging about the logistics of actually delivering that so like that's that's where I really dig into imagining the future. Like the future is like, okay, we're just going to assume the most ridiculous premise to start, which is that like you unlimited free luxury is available at any given time. What are the struggles of people's day-to-day lives in that context? And it's, it's sort of similar to the struggles that we would have now, just with the different sort of window dressing. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I think because sometimes too, there's a tendency to imagine that if some of the, um, problems in your life that feel the biggest were solved, then your life wouldn't have problems anymore. But if we think about like history, you kind of start to notice that that probably wouldn't be true. Like there, there would be people in the world who existed for whom getting water every day, clean drinking water every day, uh, was an issue. It took some hours of work every day. And if you were like, Hey, you know, I could save you two hours of work every day. We'll build you a house, pipe water right into it. They might be like, you know, what would I even do with all that free time? Or like, that's a that's an insanely perfect society you're describing. Water coming out of the walls of my oh cabin. yeah, and we can actually change the temperature of the water at will. So oh, you yeah, can just have nice. it be hot right right out of the tap. And people do do that when you talk about reducing work and stuff. They're like, people literally do say that. Like, what would I? Yeah. Okay. What would I do if that? Exactly. Yeah. Like, they, yeah, they, what they have can't... we done with all of our time so far with our microwaves and our and our you know transportation systems and and our our weekends? What have we done so far? We still don't. Ha- we don't have enough time. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's 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 hard to imagine sometimes for people that um, having these things taken care of won't be like i don't know being rolled up in a cushion and just feeling like that's a weird metaphor the warmth of being held (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's not like there's literally a giant like mommy or daddy who's gonna hold you like a baby for the rest of your life and you never have to do anything again we're gonna have new problems and new challenges (laughs) and fully automated robot mommy godhead (laughs) is gonna softly cradle you for you for future although she she has she has billions of arms two for each person so we so we will achieve that we will all be warm and cradled but then there'll be new problems (laughs) like what if robot mommy godhead is unjust (laughs) yeah if she says if she says favor to some of our siblings and we feel jealous (laughs) yeah i I mean seriously i think um like one of the reason people are reluctant to kind of um put forward like concrete ideas for utopia is because it does expose you to critiques and it does force you to if you start trying to lay out how it's going to be you're probably going to hit bits where you're like "Mm, this is maybe a potential problem so people are kind of reluctant to do it but i think it is really really important to do because people if you articulate an idea to people they are going to look at these um they are going to identify problems and you need to have some kind of response to it or have thought for it in some way. It's, it's one of the reasons I really like um, Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed. Uh, I don't know if uh, either of you are familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah. So one of so I actually covered it on the, the podcast before and one of the things we talked about was how even though it kind of sets out like this um, 
ideal society, it includes instances of, of where it doesn't work as it's supposed to. And it's not done in the classic anti-utopian way of, you know, aha, uh, you try to make utopian society, but it will inevitably like um, fail to live up to its own principles, you know, that kind of standard critique. Um, but it shows that um, nevertheless, there can be, there can be uh, instances where the, the the principles aren't always uh, as they should be, but where does that leave you? So, for example, there's a bit in the book where um, the main character realizes that at the university, they in the canteen, they get dessert every night, and at other places he lived, that's not the case. So it's kind of this thing of well, we're supposed to all be completely equal and all get the same things, but that's not happening here. But at the same time, some people have got dessert extra dessert it's not like the kind of level of uh of uh horrible inequality that we have in this society where you have like jeff bezos and somebody who's literally dying that's just some people who've got a bit of extra dessert so there is conflict and problems there but that doesn't mean it's not a, a better world and yeah i i think it makes it it makes it feel more uh relatable and believable to us if we can see that it's a world that still has some kind of tension or, or or problems so yeah i guess what what would be some of the the problems you would maybe foresee in a library socialism uh in a society of library socialism is it going to be stuff like um so when i think about libraries i think about being annoyed at universities where you really need a book and then somebody else has got the book and then you have to kind of try and put a hold on the book, but maybe you don't get it in time. This might be a bit annoying, but to me, it feels like uh, less of a problem than the, the kind of issues we have to deal with now under neoliberal capitalism. Yeah, I mean, in places where you have a, a big ecological impact of something or a large resource base impact of something, uh, you could hypothetically... Uh, I can imagine a scenario where the demand for something is out of whack with our capacity to produce it and share it effectively. So there's something really cool that you'd like to use that you have to wait some time to use. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, th that obviously should be compared to the alternative, which is um, it's effortless to get access to this shiny, perfect thing as long as you're already uh, super powerful along the main metric of power in our society. Um and a lot of people just never have a chance to access it. This with a, having like a queue or a lottery system, at least there's a sense of like fairness towards accessing these luxury goods. But I could see that um, ballooning into, you know, major, major inconveniences in people's lives in this society. Um, and, and also like it's not like libraries are really cool. And I think the logic of the library, the challenges to the, our assumptions about property that libraries bring to the table um, is really a powerful piece to solving some of the issues around distribution um, and the climate crisis. But there's also just, it doesn't touch on some of these enormous intractable other problems that face us um, as a species, like for example, how to structure democratic participation, mm -hmm. which I see as being an ongoing sort of experimental process that's gonna take decades or even maybe hundreds of years to figure out a way to make a legitimately deeply democratic system that people feel really works for them. Um, so there's there's no sure, and how are we gonna prevent conflict and war? How are we gonna prevent um, the animosity between people spinning out of control to the point where they 
um, are violent towards each other or otherwise cruel and stuff like these these problems aren't going away and I don't think uh, although libraries are great and library socialism is the perfect ideology that everyone should agree mm -hmm. with um, we're we're really far from like silver bullet solutions to some of these deep deep problems of what it means to be a human being and and what it means to participate in politics and stuff like this this uh, admittedly libraries solve these really major important problems and it's a, i think important to acknowledge that but there's there's like we're, we're we've got no shortage of uh we've got no shortage of struggles and strife uh ahead of us uh, yeah <laughs> Going back to what you said kind of about people feeling reluctant to talk about utopian ideas because they're, they they don't want to deal with criticisms or pushback against it. Um, but like the the way I see the purpose of like giving out these utopian ideals, that that's like perfect. That's part of it because part, like part of what you're doing is just describing the direction you want to go in. Like I don't think anyone's going to transcribe what me and Sean say about library socialism and then spread it around and everybody's going to agree with it and it's just going to be implemented the way it is. Uh, so if you tell me there's some real flaw in our thinking and some specific thing isn't going to work uh, because we haven't figured it out and we didn't work around that specifically, that's fine. Like That doesn't bother me uh, because I'm not... I'm not handing you a blueprint to use perfectly. We're saying this seems really good. This seems like a really good direction we want to head in. So while we're describing what we think it might look like to get to that place, uh, we also want to talk about where are we right now and understanding where we are right now so that we know what we have to do to get closer to the or to move in the direction uh, that we're talking about and i think getting those critiques and people collaborating and participating in this discussion in various ways uh, all these different contributions is it's going to be part of that process of of getting to it so um like i i think yeah just we can kind of get away from this idea that you need to lay out this perfect philosophical system that closes every loop and has an argument for every eventuality and just it, it's a perfectly contained logic that works a hundred percent like like anarcho-capitalism has that if you want that uh listen to some anarcho-capitalist thinkers they can completely logically from their premises explain every single objection you have and it's a closed system and it's perfect uh maybe being a bit uh, uh uh generous there but there's to a good extent they can do that 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 doesn't matter that's not the point the point isn't that i want to describe the perfect society actually perfectly and then we have to do it just like that the point is about inspiration and directionality and like good ideas that seem like they would work and then trying it out in the real world with actual people uh and seeing what happens you know yeah sure although uh library socialism i'm, I'm confident is starting to spread i i uh i saw um i assume you, you saw cory doctorow write an article about it yeah. yeah, yeah, it was really awesome. That was was really that recent or was that. that like a while ago? Uh, it was, I guess, like maybe a month or two ago, something like that. Okay, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, no, it's um, I I really like Cory Doctorow. So for so I guess someone uh, referenced our, or passed our podcast uh, on to to him and Boing Boing and did a little write up about it, um, which was yeah. like yeah, killer. Because I think there's um, I I do think that there's something really special about commingling these ideas um, and. I w- welcome more eyes and minds on how these ideas uh, can work together and how these ideas intersect with other things. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was super stoked. Could you just so I think and inst- I think people one of the kind of instinctive negative reactions people might have to the idea of library socialism is that people have attachments to some of the things they own, it, even though like so a lot of us I think most people might. Yeah, most people would definitely be on board with the idea of I don't have a speedboat and I can't get a speedboat, but in library socialism, I would be able to um, get myself out of a speedboat. But they have things in their day-to-day lives that they're very attached to owning. I'm very used to the idea of having um, personal property that we don't like to don't like to share. So I just wondered if you could kind of address uh, that concern that people might have. Like, yeah, why do you think that won't be a problem in library socialism or will people be will people still own things do you envision people still owning things in library socialism kind of i mean functionally like it, it's if, if you take something out from the library and you uh only return it to the library after you die did you own it because i think there's some stuff you could argue or, or like be... after that you know your kid had the, an emotional attachment to it because you did it's this lamp you both loved uh, happy memories whatever uh <laughs> and your kid can keep out like i don't see any need to force people to get a new backpack every six months if you really love your backpack like you have to return it and then take it out again like i, I don't see time limits working the same way that they normally do for libraries that have uh, you know, relatively limited book bases and want to serve a large amount of people with it. Uh, part of the idea of expanding these things would be ideally to have enough of everything so that people can use what they need whenever they need to use it. And if that means you have um, a teddy bear that your kid loves and they have it for eight years and they even want to keep it into adulthood because when they first move out of home and go to university it's nice to have their teddy bear with them something like that like it's whatever that's fine i don't any, no one wants to take your teddy bear unless there's like a major teddy bear shortage but i don't see that see that happening <laughs> it's not something we've yet struggled uh through as a society teddy bear shortages but maybe when that person's like 30 years old and they're downsizing they have a whole bunch of stuff and they're like you know what i actually i I don't need this teddy bear anymore. It would bring me joy for some other kid to enjoy this old teddy bear. Uh, return it to the library. Library cleans it up. The fabric. Yeah, actually, well, in the same way that inventing the future, they, they talk about challenging the work ethic as part of the the package of reducing the work week. And our challenge to property uh, through the library metaphor, part of that has to be sort of a cultural change also of like this idea mm-hmm. of like hoarding and, and having needs to be softened. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't have things uh, basically functionally forever and there's a spectrum too like there's stuff that sort of makes more sense to be from a dispensary like 
food is not something that you're going to return medication and, and yeah there's things that are like that and that they're very personal effects uh, i could see an argument for dispensing but not returning um underwear i could see arguments for you know and we can have those discussions let's have the democratic yeah, discussion like o- on. old underwear gets reprocessed into carpets or something you know like what what you know you figure out what you do with it in, in a system that makes sense but but i think a lot of that concern comes first from like people do create emotional attachments to objects and i think that's fine Mm -hmm. and i think that if that happens you can generally keep something uh we're not trying to stop them but but also i think a lot of that fervent like oh you can't take this away from me i need it comes from the fact that in our society right now if that was taken away from you you'd have to buy another one and that would cost you money and that's work hours of your life and so that fear of not owning something for yourself and it's yours comes from the fundamental insecurity of if you don't own something in the society you might not be able to get that need met um so i think once the experiential reality of I don't need to own it in order to have it whenever I need it becomes normal for people, they'll be far less concerned with it. Like someone who says, I love my speedboat. I love caring for my speedboat. Like it's my favorite thing in the world. Um, being like, this is be an incredibly unjust society. Uh, I, I just can't help but think if they grew up in a world where speedboats were just available whenever they needed it at the lake, uh, maybe with a bit of a weight, they, they wouldn't be so keen on like hooking it up to their truck and like driving it down to the lake and uh, afterwards rinsing it off and like applying new coats to the paint or whatever. Like maybe you're a hobbyist and you do love that, but I think most people won't. Uh, something that connects to this that I think we can see a profound example of this exact process that you're describing happening over the last couple of decades through the advent of file sharing and the way that people's attitudes towards mm. music, TV and movies has changed with these streaming platforms yeah. that have uh, come out of the come out of sort of the post file sharing uh, media landscape is like now it used to be that you needed to own a movie to experience it. But now I don't know anyone who takes any effort to own any movies ever. They're just used to this yeah. premise that there's this library there yeah, that I they know, have access to. I know one person who still collects Blu-rays for everything. Like they just like to buy the Blu-ray, but most people not. And even they acknowledge like, yeah, it's a bit of a weird thing. I'm just obsessed with these discs. I know it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a bit odd it's eccentric now and i think I, it would, I feel like sorry yeah i think it, it would be eccentric in the future for for a lot of things like that but to, also to like tend to your boat would be eccentric but we probably would have room for it most of the time to allow those eccentrics to keep their walls covered in all the that's what rings. i was gonna say yeah 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 exactly yeah they yeah, probably have the latitude to indulge hobbyisms because by nature they would be kind of yeah they wouldn't be widespread um, two other quick things I'll say in, in kind of favor of that. There are um, studies that tend to suggest that people are well aware that consumerism uh, does not make them happy, um, that it's not a good thing. Um, and also, if you've ever been kind of con- um, disconnected from your possessions for every for any length of time, for some reason, you'll probably find quite a lot of people say, um, so for example, I moved uh, countries and um, a lot of my stuff was in a 
uh, container for like a year or more and you forget like a lot of the stuff that you own um, and this is a thing that you often hear people say when they've been away for things they kind of realize that they have a lot of stuff that they didn't need or they completely forgot they owned it so I think people would adjust um, to that kind of situation a lot quicker than you might expect I yeah I just had the same experience I just moved into a new place and I'm unpacking boxes that I never unpacked in the last place that I was at for the first time uh-huh. in like years yeah. and uh, I need to get rid of this shit but there's no library to return it to and like so I have to figure out like okay well am I gonna where could I donate this to or no there's probably still some value here I could set up some Craigslist posts and get rid of like go through this whole process to like cycle it back to good homes in a way that benefits me but just returning that to a library and knowing that it's going to like be in someone else's hands who actually wants it for like, like old technology or um, like, yeah, yeah, like DVDs. I've got DVDs from back when you used to buy DVDs in this box. What am I going to do with it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's intuitively appealing like that too. the way that like someone else will take care of that for you. You don't have to feel guilty about throwing out something that's still good or alternatively giving it away for free on Craigslist or like making an ad to sell it. Like that's a hassle for people like yeah. owning things is a hassle for people. A lot of the time you have to take care of it. And like, that's what Oscar Wilde said about the wealthy was that we need to liberate them from the burden of their wealth that they're so weighed down by having all these possessions they always have to worry oh my my house out in the country is it okay oh my house in this other country is it okay my my second car does it need to be fixed up we'll just you know liberate them don't worry about it (laughs) it's all it's all been returned to the library (laughs) that's another thing we could definitely all relate to like the uh throwing this away feels like such a waste but yeah it's a big hassle to like sell it or blah blah blah. so yeah just return it to the to the library and it's not wasted and it's easy or Uh, it's like you you buy something that you think you're gonna use because you saw some advert or whatever maybe there wouldn't be that kind of advertising that tricks people so much but still like you might get excited at the idea of something and then you buy it yeah like i'm gonna learn guitar yeah yeah exactly it's like I'm going to, yeah, then I've done this. I don't, I was actually thinking about this recently is that I bought a guitar and I don't know where it is. I don't know if I gave it away or something. I don't, I don't have it anymore, but, uh, I bought a guitar thinking I was going to play guitar and then I never used it. So if it was a library thing after a couple months, I might've been like, oh yeah, I'll just give this back. And then someone else could use it, but it, there's no there's no option for that in this society like yeah you can give it away but that's work it's not it's just yeah we want the convenience of this one thing the library system that you can just give it back to it's it's like a money back guarantee with no money at any step in the process it's just a guarantee it's just the it's just a the money back guarantee because i was thinking about returning that if if you were like within the window of the 30 days or whatever from this music store you still had the receipt you could have returned your guitar and gotten all your money um and then also functionally like there's journalism that shows that a lot of the stuff just gets thrown out so like the system has this makeshift library system in certain contexts with this money back guarantee thing that just generates all this waste so it's like the exact it's like this evil library it's like the nega library it's this mustache twirling 
Universe B library that's just destroying the world faster for no reason. Uh, and even if you still had the company, like you could imagine a world where you return something to the company and they get rid of it. It's probably all the same to them if someone took that laptop or not. But for them, throwing it in the trash is the easiest thing for them to do. Yeah. So it's the same thing as this Craigslist thing. Like, yeah, they could give it to someone. The individual people working in that building would probably rather someone use the laptop, but they can't do that because of how our society is set up right now. The the motivations of the company and like time and how that all works is like they're not paying them to make sure those laptops go to someone because they can't sell them as new anymore. They're paying them to sell as many as possible. So those get thrown in the trash. That that just randomly reminded me there's this around jumping back to the Occupy stuff. There's all this concern around direct action and property destruction. But the it like the occupiers they threw a chair through a starbucks window um how horrible this property was destroyed that's awful um this like are are the occupiers um good people they're destroying property but their objection the objection of the people who have problems with that type of direct action is personally it's not really this the scene that i'm involved in i don't really think it's that helpful usually but their objection isn't that the window was destroyed it was dis- their objection is it was destroyed by someone other than the owner. Yeah. You're allowed to destroy your own windows. Yeah. And I think that's sort of bullshit. And I think that's like the, like dis- if destroying a window is bad, which I think it is sort of bad and that you need to get a new window and stuff. If you need a window there, it's only bad if you're destroying someone else's things. I think destroying your own things is also bad. So like, you should return your stuff to the library instead. Yeah. Because, because ev- everything that exists is made from the resources of our world, which is our common, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Heritage? Yeah. That, 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 this is, it's, the resources are, uh, of, the world's resources think that we should all own in common. So everything that's made comes out of that. So yeah, people should be able to just destroy our resources because they don't, want it anymore i'm wealthy enough to buy and then destroy resources so that's how it is yeah like, oh i bought more of this medicine that people need oh, time to step on that stepping jumping and stepping the most important form of liberty is that nobody stops me from doing this <laughs> it's my property i'm allowed to jump and step on this life-saving medicine that i don't need that i bought but only i can afford that is that's the logic of the that's that's what people who don't support library socialism sound like. <laughs> it is indeed. Library haters. Will hoarders be executed under library socialism? <laughs> no, we'll help them. We'll get, they need to ask a that hug, question. I'm just oh, that's actually that's an important. I'm glad you asked this question too, because <laughs> often when you start talking about um, a revolutionary change to society, people are like, "Who are you killing? When and why?" Um, and the, our answer to that in library socialism is we're going to kill nobody um, as a result of transitioning to the system. It's you don't need to do that. And we take a big influence from uh, Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers is a major along with social ecology. And it might sound like I'm kidding, but I'm not, I'm only half kidding. I'm only maybe a third kidding. Inventing the future social ecology. Mr. Rogers all in the mix yeah i only have a vague concept of who that is from listening to your podcast i don't know who that guy is 
Uh, is he like some American? Oh yeah. Did in in the UK? Did you have any wholesome supportive people on TV who weren't pedophiles? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a big issue in the UK. I could have said yes thing. until you added the qualifier at the end. <laughs> uh, pedophiles. Uh, I don't know if we did. <laughs> Uh, that's a fair question right like i'm not being uk phobic it's like a real thing with the children's entertainers right yeah it's a a real thing yeah um no that's definitely a real thing uh so like mr rogers was like not i'm sure i'm sure that i'm sure there is one and uh uh, people can um people can tweet me wholesome uk uh (laughs) children's entertainers at utopian horizons um i can't think of one right now uh, but anyway, that's that's who he is. Okay, he's a wholesome children's entertainer. Yeah, and he he knew a lot about child development, and like he really cared about giving kids kind of what they needed to have like a secure foundation in their life in the world. And like, he he understood a lot about like humanity and psychology, and it really comes through in his show um, and in his like sort of lasting uh, impact. We we did an episode on him a while back. Um, the on mr rogers and then there's also been some documentaries and the tom hanks movie that just came out which was pretty good too um so yeah i mr rogers is definitely worth like looking into some of his his stuff i like his uh charlie rose interview a lot it's like a good adult yeah something yeah oriented interview where he's really showing that he's a wise smart person because the thing is sometimes in politics you know we can be really negative or you can encounter people who are really negative and it turns people away um i think there's a real like um we we should be motivated towards universal human emancipation whether or not leftist people we meet are jerks to us um like that's important that's foundational ethical stuff but at the same time we have to acknowledge that like, there's a problem sometimes with the way that like people in these communities, like left-wing communities, sometimes treat each other, um, and like weird stuff around like social capital um, and and stuff like that, which don't really have time uh, to unpack every every piece of that. But the no, sure. the the heart of our counterpoint to that, and I think is the library socialist aligned idea, or at least I want to include it under this banner. Um, because libraries are very friendly places, because libraries are these very like welcoming, accommodating places, yeah. I think we should also sort of have strive to be that accommodating within um, organizations, but also as a society, like we need to be accommodating and dependable, um, and that we we need to set up societies so, so that when someone someone falls, someone else is going to be able to catch them, um, and uh, part of that I think is just like learning um how to be nicer to each other and like build a pro-social environment where people have a productive disposition um and that we're mutually supportive i think that's both part of the outcome that we're seeking to find and like radically rechanging society but is also going to have to be part of the process of getting there yeah because i think a lot of this stuff comes from like these weird social relations that exist in society right now and this is stuff that mr rogers was pushing back on like he there's some really good kind of anti-capitalist 
quotes from him about like oh, our society now is trying to mold kids to growing up into being a good consumer so that like or to be a person who plays a role in the society and they ask kids like what do you want to be when you grow up um, and it gives them this impression that they aren't going to have value until they're a fireman or until they're a teacher until they can afford to buy things and he was always very focused on like making sure people knew that they were um, like good enough, like you're special just the way you are, a thing he said all the time. But just the idea that if we have a more nurturing society, we're going to have people who are able to be more nurturing to one another and who don't have like kind of um, unprocessed emotions that they're working through that can cause tensions in social situations. So um it, doing that reflecting inward and reflecting on how we're raising our kids and how the way we were raised is affecting how we're approaching our politics and the world around us i think is all really productive stuff if we want to be building a better future where these kind of uh social issues aren't there early on for people and aren't causing a lot of these problems to begin with sure okay well um i'm i'm certainly a, a a supporter of, of library socialism. I hope we can continue continue to um, spread the good word of, of library socialism. And um, yeah, as people, I'm sure people who listen to this podcast are on board by now with the idea that utopia is not is not about the impossible. It's about it's about how we can change the conditions of what is considered possible. So even if some of the ideas in, in library socialism seem far-fetched uh, i would like to suggest that they're not and these are all things which are feasible we have the the technologies we have the resources to be able to to do something like this so um yeah i think it's important that we that we do things like this to have these concrete visions as we said so that we can um develop ideas that are there to use as and when um there might be an opportunity to implement them uh, thank you very much to both of you for uh we, i know we've been talking for a long time so i appreciate you uh giving me your time where should people go to um find you yeah so we well yeah thanks for having us on uh, i was really fun to talk about this stuff and i'm just like really stoked that your show exists and it's covering utopia and dystopia uh, from these different angles uh each episode our website is srslywrong.com seriously wrong.com uh, and we're on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Patreon, etc. You can also email us, you know, contact at seriouslywrong.com. And on all podcast things, obviously. Where your podcasts are borrowed from the podcast library. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I really recommend people um, check it out. I, I really, really like it. I'm slightly worried that I'll lose listeners because you've got a better Utopian podcast than me. But I'll take that risk. Um, uh, they'll listen to yeah, both. Uh, it's been fun. <laughs> Yeah, especially and in library socialism, people will have more time to listen to the podcast that they want to. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, not because they're forced to, but because they want to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Take care. That is the end of this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Definitely take the time to listen to to seriously wrong. Um, it's a really, really insightful and clever and funny utopian podcast. I'm sure you're going to love it if you if you like what I'm doing here. 
and yeah if you're if you're new to my show from seriously wrong then as i said up top um please consider taking a moment to to scroll through my feed and seeing if there's anything that appeals to you um as always if you want to get in touch with me to uh ask any questions or um make any comments or whatever it is then you can find me on twitter at utopian horizons you can email me on utopian horizons pod at gmail.com i will uh do one more quick plug for Get Object, the new podcast on things in video games that I'm doing with Rosie. We're very proud of, of what we've done with these first three episodes and we're excited for, for people to hear it. And um, so, yeah, thanks for listening. Sorry you've had to listen, listen to my blocked up cold voice. I will be back soon with a new episode. Cheers. Bye bye. <laughs>